Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain, America's favorite podcast for wilderness EMS. That's right. Why are you leaving Europe out, huh? Europe's got mountains and stuff. What's up? Yeah, but Europe's way more advanced in wilderness EMS than we are. We are fledgling children just like we are as a nation to them. That's true. We're the kindergartners of wilderness EMS. That's exactly. So once again, I'm Sean, and as always, joined by my partner, Mike. And today we're going to be talking about the environment. All right. So we talked a lot, a lot of things so far that make wilderness and austere medicine unique and challenging. And one of the biggest, which is... Not, I won't say always overlooked, but sometimes not given as much attention as it should, is the environment. So this is one of those, another one of those topic areas that you have to always take into account. Everything you do with wilderness EMS, whether it's equipment selection, how you're responding to a patient, how you think you're going to care for your patient, etc. So as we start, what is the environment? Let's just start off by saying it is not just the weather. The weather is the weather. The weather is not the environment in and of itself. The environment consists of a couple of different things, the weather being one of them, and is usually the one topic area that everybody gives the most attention to because it's the easiest to look at, to see, to feel, to plan for. And the other parts of it is, is really a big one is terrain. And this comes into how you plan for your mission in general, the equipment and supplies that you might carry, how you load out your, your backcountry medicine kit, the things you carry with you. And some of the other considerations that you need to go into when planning for your entire what's called operational sphere. So first and foremost, we are EMS on the mountain. So the mountains, right? Whether you're a, a West Coast, big mountains, the Rockies, the Sierras, etc., or you're out here on the East Coast and you're looking at what those of us from the West would call foothills, uh, <laughs> the mountains is probably one of your most common places that everybody thinks about when they think about wilderness medicine. It, it's the mountains. So obviously with the mountains, terrain is a big one, going up, going down, where Mike and I tend to do most of our wilderness time. I swear everything goes up. Everything goes always. up. Always. Even when you're doing the evacuation, when you think you should be going back down, it yeah. still seems to be going, still up. going up. And I'm no, getting too old up. for everything to keep going up. It's better than going down, man. My knees can take up. I can't take down. Oh, that's a true story. Although down means you're getting closer to the ambulance and being done. That's true. So things with the mountains. Again, this will vary depending on where you're at. So if you're on the East Coast, altitudes, generally speaking, not an issue for us. Right? We're not getting above 8,000, maybe a 10,000 peak somewhere out here. I don't know. But you go West, operating in Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, out into the Sierras and California, Nevada, et cetera, when you can hit 10,000 feet easy, you know, that's, that's where you start the day and you can go up into the 14,000 foot range pretty much any day of the week you want in Colorado, right? There are 14,000 peaks that people do as day hikes out there. Altitude becomes an issue. If you're not acclimatized to it, if it's not your natural working environment, you're going to have issues. And this is also something you need to take into consideration when we're talking about your patients and the illnesses and injuries that you could see with them. Uh, so acute mountain sickness, probably the most common thing folks out West or our friends in Europe will give the nod. Hey. Are going to see a lot of times with their patients, right? Unless you're working the extreme altitude stuff, if you're working in Nepal, you're working the Everest Base Camp, 
acute mountain sickness is, is very low as far as your concerns with altitude illnesses. And we're not going to discuss those today. I don't even know if we're ever going to really get anything probably beyond acute mountain sickness with, with Mike and I discussing this. Simply because in the United States... I don't States, feel like things like hape and haste are in the world of... Yeah, that's what I'm saying is Colorado, a few places. If you're hitting Alaska and you're going up Denali, yeah, yeah. certainly something to be thinking about. Yeah, but for the most part, not a huge consideration, especially for us East Coast folks. I can already see the Facebook post or the email we're going to get that says, what are you talking about? I've got a buddy that got hape in like Iowa. Like it's going to yeah. happen. Somebody's going to tell us that. But yeah, yes. in general, it's not a huge concern. In the yeah. yeah, well, and I will say... In, your friend who got hape in Iowa didn't get it from altitude. He got it <laughs> because of some other pathophysiologic reason. Yeah, true story. All right, so the mountains, right? Terrain, elevation, trees, a lot of trees. This is where you might have to be more proficient in your technical rescue skills, moving patients vertically or near vertically through terrain for evacuations. Don't forget, everything is not necessarily a lift. It could also be a lower down to someplace else that's easier to move your patients. So think about that one. And weather extremes in the mountains tend to be a bit more aggressive than they are in a lot of other environments. Just because of the nature of the, the mountains themselves, the altitude, when weather has to travel around and above them, it changes the operating environment when it comes to the weather. And so that's something you have to be aware of. Weather can change really quickly and become super bad when it was just sunny and happy 20 minutes before. And so that's really what we're going to cover with mountains. We're not going to get too deep into a lot of these. We're just giving some general considerations and thoughts for your planning purposes. You are responsible for being intimately familiar with your operating environment. That's probably worth note that the reality is that some teams operate in a, in a majority of these environments, but the reality is that your team and your environment and your geography is going to dictate your specialty when it comes to being good at the particular environment. But these are all general considerations for all of these different environments. The mountains being the one that Sean and I probably know the most about. This is where we play ball the most. Mid-Atlantic is unsurprisingly full of green stuff that's kind of short and shrubby. Uh, we don't have massive redwoods and things out here. But we got trees. We got hills. We got rocks. Uh, what we don't have a whole lot of is desert. Sean, you want to talk about deserts? So the desert, my second favorite operating environment in the history of ever. This is going to be... One of those more unique environments, we'll say, for the paramedic or the austere provider who's actually usually operating in these environments as part of a contracted kind of professional services gig, providing services to gas oil platforms, literally in the desert, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait kind of places, things like that. Or if uh, our military or private military contractor type guys doing security work, support work for the U.S. government or other nations doing just doing security in Africa for African countries and their businesses. You might find yourself in a desert environment. So the thing with the desert is everybody assumes automatically right off the bat is it's hot, which depending on which desert you're in, yes, absolutely 100% the desert can be hot and it can be brutal. And that is something you absolutely need to be considered of when it comes to watching out for patients. Heat problems are going to be at the top of your list in those summer months. It's not always hot though, is it? That is correct. You get to like the winter months. Yeah. And for those of us who've been snowed on in places like Iraq and such, it still snows. It still gets cold, right? It's still the desert. It's still the desert and it snows in the desert depending on where you're at. So the assumption of the desert is just a hot environment is wrong. This is where you definitely need to know where you're operating. Like if you're a paramedic and you're going to take some sort of austere medical gig overseas doing work as 
uh, on-site medical support person for a gas oil platforms out literally in Saudi Arabia, somewhere in the middle of nowhere. You should probably do a little research on the desert in that environment. Look at the annual extremes, both hot and cold, yeah. and look at what your operating environment is going to be. You need to be aware of that because, yeah, those things, yeah, the switch between hot and cold in some of those places, depending on the time of year, can be very extreme in and of itself. They'll and if you, you think about, yeah, so if you think about a patient who you might have a pretty severe, either injured or ill patient, and you don't have a secure climate controlled clinic type facility to keep them in, if you're operating out of the back of a truck somewhere and you're going from an 85 degree Fahrenheit day to a 30 degree Fahrenheit evening, that's a large temperature swing for somebody who is significantly injured or ill to endure because metabolically their body is not going to be pleased with either of those, especially the giant swing in between. So if you're going to work in the desert, bring a coat is basically <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's just like anywhere, right? So just, you know, the mountains, I mean, Colorado, you could be 95 during the day and damn yeah. near freezing at night. So there's a lot of places that have these environmental swings. It's just the desert. If you're not used to it, you didn't go into it thinking anything but heat and find yourself a bit surprised. And then there's some other environmental things you need to take into consideration, depending where you're at, what country you're in. Things like sandstorms. If you've ever seen a large full scale monster sandstorm, it's no joke. Those things will eat you alive and it can truly disrupt your, your operating environment, especially if you're operating in some sort of exposed conditions. Like if you're just in trucks driving around and you get caught out there in the open like that, that can be bad news, especially if you have injured or ill people. Other than that, the desert is a lot of times relatively benign. Water is a problem, of course. Heat is a problem. And depending on which desert you're in, the local, we'll say, political climate can be of, of interest to you and can make things a bit sporting where you might be part of a security team or you might have to have a security team with you depending on where you're at. And so you're not talking about New Mexico, are you? Yeah, not necessarily New Mexico. No. All right, that's fair. But New Mexico is a good example of one of those places where during the day you could be 100 degrees and then at night if you're at the foot, the tail end of the Rockies there, it gets cold. Yeah, so just I've done some stuff there. At. And it, I mean, the, the weather does swing wildly, right? The sun is extreme. And when there's no more sun, there's nothing to really hold in that, temperature or hold in that yeah. uh, that energy and it gets chilly quick it really does yeah so next one the jungle and the jungle is definitely a very very unique operating environment as well this is one where again everybody thinks it's going to be hot and humid and for the most part that is a true story you're not going to get to a jungle status in the environment in all the vegetation if it's not hot and humid and full of moisture so the thing with the jungle is it is wet. It's almost always wet. Operationally, there's some things you need to take into account. Your ability to put on dry clothes for sleeping or for your own personal comfort. The number of other diseases and things that can affect you and your patients in an environment where you're always wet need to be considered. Do I have to be able to do, we'll call them, as we've talked about before, our basic nursing skills? Do I have to be able to roll my patient over, dry them off, make sure they stay dry? Because even if they're just laying there, the humidity level is going to, can be high enough that you just lay there and you sweat just because your body's trying to keep itself cool. And the only way to do that is try to sweat because that's how humans do it. And in those super humid tropical jungle environments, your sweat goes nowhere and you just keep sweating and you just are wet all day long. So if you've all got a patient long. who's just laying there wet, that can be bad. And that's going to start leading to skin problems and infection. And if they actually have a wound, 
one of the things we always try to do with a wound is keep it dry and covered to help prevent the infection. Well, if you're always sweating through your dressings and your wound is just always moist, just because we're going to say moist, moist and wet, that's obviously not a good combination for keeping your patient's wounds clean and free of infection. So the jungle provides a unique operating environment. A lot of times this is not one of those places you're just going to throw your patient on the ground, get a pad under him and cover him up. The jungle floor is where all the funky, creepy, crawly things tend to live, especially at night. This is where I was first introduced to the glory of hammock camping it was in the jungle. And I will tell you, if I'm ever in a jungle environment again, I will never, ever sleep on the jungle floor again, unless I absolutely have to. I will be in my hammock. But you have the ability to put a patient in a hammock, keep them off the jungle floor, keep the, all those many things that want to crawl and slither and stalk you at night up off the floor and keep them drier and more comfortable. More considerations. Do you have to bring another hammock with you? Or are you just going to use your hammock and you're going to go without? How long do you want to do that for? It's a good time. Rain gear. Rain gear gets debated a lot when it comes to the jungle. You're either going to be wet from sweat inside your rain gear or you're going to be wet from the rain. So you got to choose which one you're going to go with. If you're walking and moving, most people tend to just forego the rain gear because you're just going to be wet anyway. It's normally when you're able to be static, put on dry gear and then put some rain gear over the top that you're going to use it. And again, the jungle can be deceptively warm during the day and get cold at night. This is often a relative cold. So 85, 90, 95 degrees with super high humidity during the day, dropping down to like 50, 60 degrees at night. If you're in Southern California, dropping down to 60 degrees at night, it's like, nice, let me grab a sweatshirt and let's go out to the beach. But if you went from 95 degrees high humidity during the day down to a 60 degree night and being wet, it cools down and it becomes uncomfortable. So you still got to think about some of the temperature swings and be familiar with them and how to work with them. Somewhere in between the two of those, we get us down to the beach. So for lifeguards, and again, people working overseas and other austere environments, the beach is, I wouldn't say super unique. It's going to bound one or the other, something along a desert, jungle, mountains, normal temperate zones. It's just, you're at the beach, you're on the water. So you just got to be aware of your surroundings, know when the tides are doing, know where it's safe to be, or know if you're going to wake up getting wet going, wow, what's that and why? Know that if you are in certain foreign countries, other animals creep down into the beach at night looking for other animals to eat. And some of them are humans. Yes, and some of them are humans. First time I ever saw a lion hanging out on the beach, like, holy crap, that's a wild lion. Wow. That <laughs> it was, actually... it was, it was kind of interesting. It was like, so cool. That's, that's a lion right there. <laughs> so you just uh, hung out and eventually it went away, but it's there. So the beach, I just throw it in there as, be, as just one more place that medics or austere providers could find themselves working, depending on where you're at. It's probably just going to be one of those, we'll call it border transition zones, depending on where you are. Just knowing where it is. Understand if uh, people are allowed to use the beach and go swimming in the ocean, that brings in some of that marine life, marine envenomation, things you need to be more aware of. Know that if they're swimming off the shore, is there a preponderance of shark attacks in that area? Is there, because I'm kind of, I mean, I've been to the beach, right? I'm, I'm a human in America. But is there a, a greater concern for like sand and wounds and the sand tends to be stickier and whatnot in a beach environment as opposed to like a desert environment? Is that true? Or does it really not matter? Is sand sand? I would say sand is generally sand. With the beach, what you get is 
and it can apply to the desert too, but a lot of times on those coastal environments, the wind coming off the ocean blows sand everywhere. So you're generally, you can get just sand literally everywhere in your mm -hmm. gear, in wounds. You're trying to dress wounds, but the gust of wind will come by and just blow sand all over it, which could also happen obviously in a desert environment just because it's full of sand. But not every desert is sand. Some it's very hard packed to dirt and rock. Mm -hmm. So it, again, it depends on the desert. It depends on the beach. There are some beaches that are gravel covered and right. it's rock and they're not sand. So not a concern. And again, with the beach, a lot of times that sand is, even if it's just slightly wet from the humidity or being near the ocean, it's yeah. a little wetter, which is why it tends to like stick, stick. and people think it sticks more. Okay. So yeah, that could be a concern if you're doing some wound treatment, trying to keep it clean. It's probably worth note, and everybody's going to think I'm, I'm just silly for this, but you shouldn't drink the water if you're at the beach. Like, don't do it. <laughs> right? And I know like nine tenths of the people listening to us, which is like four people, are laughing at me, but that fifth person is like, what, you can't drink the ocean in an emergency? And the answer is no, no, you cannot. It's <laughs> well, a really good way to dehydrate and die. Let's be specific there. You can, right, until it kills you. Right, until you die, right? You um, can do anything once or three or four it, times, that, but you will eventually, exactly yeah. you will eventually not be alive if you drink too much salt water. So Yeah, which maybe eventually when we get to video segments, we talk about some survival fundamentals. We'll discuss why we don't drink salt water, but yes, if you're at the beach, don't go drinking salt water. It doesn't matter what beach you're on. Salt water's bad. It's, it's really not the best for wound irrigation either. That's, yeah, but it's, there it's are worse of, things. It, I mean, there are worse things, but it is, in general, you should assume like any If I have a Nalgene bottle of what I think is relatively clean ocean water or somebody says, I'll pee on it, I'll just I'm use go the with ocean the salt, water. The Nalgene, yeah. But in general, you should assume that any, any ocean water near a shore somewhere has microbes and stuff in it. And, oh, of course know. it is. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Which again, what actually brings up a good point, things like the red tide. You need to be aware of that if you operate near a beach, because if folks go out swimming in that and that, that big algae blooms, yeah. those breed a lot of funky bacteria and everything. That's why they bloom those red and odd colors that can make your patients or your population very sick. Very sick. And something you should yeah. be aware of if you're in that environment. Again, that's one of those do your research pieces. All right. So next on the list, the swamp. You're now, not talking about Washington, D.C., are you? <laughs> Though it was built on a swamp. <laughs> Literally. Literally. Um, no. But for me and Mike, operating in the Mid-Atlantic, swamps are actually very common when we uh, were much more active in the search and rescue environment. It yeah. is, was completely within the realm of possibility that you're going to end up wading through some bit of swamp land somewhere or another during a search, especially as you move more towards the coastal regions. So the swamp is much like the jungle. It is wet. It is just, it's wet. That's why it's a swamp. It's always right? gross. There are a lot of other environmental hazards in it to include in which most people think of, depending where you're at, the alligators and the snakes are out there. If you're operating overseas, the saltwater crocodiles, no joke. Uh, <laughs> there have been a couple of places I've been where jogging along a path and we're like, oh, hey, we're going to take a detour here. And folks are like, hey, man, I wouldn't do that. Saltwater crocs will get you that way. And you're like, for real? And they're like, oh, yeah, for real. And it's like, <laughs> oh, and then you find out later in the town where they've got a big sign and billboard like number of croc deaths this year. And when it's up to like 12, you're like, wow, that's crazy. They keep track of croc deaths. So if you're in one of those swamp environments that has saltwater crocodiles, generally they're aggressive. They will eat you because you're food and they're at the top of the food chain in that environment. <laughs> you're food and they're hungry. <laughs> in the U.S., there's alligators, which I'm not saying are not dangerous. But they, um, they don't like saltwater crocs. They're not as aggressive yeah, as like some of the saltwater crocodiles you find overseas. Uh, but we do have snakes that tend to 
be slithering about in the swamps. Mm-hmm. And again, it's one of those places that easy to get dirty, easy to stay wet. Infection is a big concern. Just normal skin rashes and infections are a problem. And it's something you just need to be aware of and how you're going to operate. You're going to be in boats. You're going to have to be waiting. If you're going to be waiting around in the swamp for something, do a good bit of research about the threats that are in that area. So you know what you're wading into, literally and figuratively. I feel like that's your job. I'm just going to stay in the boat. I'm yeah, just... that's my thing. Is, hey, what was it? Uh, Apocalypse Now. Never get off the boat, man. Yep. Yeah. This is Never one of those. If you're yeah. in the swamp, yeah, just bring the patient to me. We'll, we'll go from there. Yeah. That seems like a much better plan. You, you guys over there that are good at this stuff, you bring them to me. I'll be here on the boat. Waiting. It's exactly right. Yeah. So in previous episodes, we've talked a lot about the mountains and moving patients and patient access. So the desert, can you walk to your patients? Can you walk your patients out? Absolutely. If you're in a desert environment, this is one of those, a wheeled litter is going to be amazing. What even be better would be a truck or an ambulance. If you need four-wheel drive and good all-terrain access, you're looking at a truck or UTV situation. Desert mobility is usually, again, environmentally depending, not a huge issue like it would be in the mountains. It's just open. And as long as you have vehicles that can navigate that particular terrain, if it's super soft, deep sand places, that's a different story. But if it's normal, what we'll call average desert, where it's more firm packed, mixed in with rock areas, vehicle travels usually fairly easily, easy. And again, big thing about the desert is all the desert is a landing zone. So if you have access to helicopter assets, you can pretty much land one wherever you want in the desert. I guess that never occurred to me. There aren't a whole lot of trees in the way in the no, desert. That's kind of why it's, why it's yeah. a desert. Yeah. Now, places like the jungle, you are very limited, much like the mountains, to very specific road tracks because the roads only go where the roads go. To make a new road to get to somebody else it requires chainsaws and a lot of effort. And you'll find a lot of places aren't just going to start lopping down trees to make a more direct path to a patient for you. So it's going to be a lot more like the mountains and when it comes to your patient access and evacuation. Same thing with helicopter use. You know, just because the nature of the jungle, the much larger, taller trees, densely packed, finding a big open clear spot to either A, hoist or land the helicopter is, is much more difficult. So this is going to be a lot more manpower, personnel intensive, carrying your patients through the jungle areas till you can get to a road and get them onto an appropriate vehicle and then begin normal wheel transport. And whether that's to directly to a hospital or to an open place for a helicopter or an airplane, et cetera. Beaches, beaches are in and of themselves pretty easy. You can, depending on the beach and where it's at, you can land aircraft on it relatively easily, depending on if it's abutted by high cliffs or not and how wide your beach is. Some beaches are very narrow before they turn right into jungle or mountain terrain, depending where you're at. But most places that you're going to operate that have beaches, you're going to have some sort of road access that led down to the beach. You're just going to be plopped on the beach by a boat and left there. I would say the places where you're doing that are the very, very remote scientific research type places. Certainly a possibility for you. And if that's where you're at, know your evacuation resources and what you're going to need. The swamp, we mentioned it, boats. Boats are a big one in the swamp, depending on where you're at. If you're operating down in the Florida, in the Everglades, the airboats, giant boats, you know, very flat bottom, very shallow draft, but a giant fan in the back, loud as all get out. That could be your fastest, best way in, or it could be traditional boats, normal power motor boats, and maybe canoes to get in closer some places that become too shallow or too restricted, even for smaller motorized vessels. You're just going to have to be aware of where you're at. And it could really be that you're just going to have to wade off and on through some of the more wet portions of a swamp. You try to stay on the softer ground as much as you can, but you 
might eventually have to traverse into some other traditional swamp and maybe get hopefully not much more than knee deep into that uh, as you get patient access or try to do your evacuations. It is and then if, what it is. Yeah. Then of course there's the combination of the above. So you could be in, well, we'll say the mid Atlantic region here. You could go from a nice, lovely beach, roll right into a swamp. And it's kind of one of those, holy cow, how did this happen? This lovely beach. Now I'm in the middle of this gross, dank swamp that is filled with alligators and poisonous snakes. And there you are. I know Mike and I have both been on a couple of searches that were very much like that. Yep. Which, in the same way, uh, out in the mid Atlantic, you could go from fairly mountainous, well, for the East Coast, mountainous into swamps back in higher elevation terrain. So you can get a flux between the two easy enough. You don't see a lot of desert to jungle action. There's usually a very good transition between the two. You never, unlike the movies, go straight from desert, then we hit a wall and it's all of a sudden a super thick triple canopy jungle. It sounds cool. Deserts and mountains go together hand in hand, right? Just because it's a desert doesn't mean there aren't high mountains. Think of the Andes down South America way. You know, it's very much a desert. Remember, deserts are defined by annual rainfall and precipitation, not by just it's sand and everywhere sand, right? So deserts and mountains go together pretty well. So you could be at a very high altitude, but still in a very dry, desert, arid environment. And these are some of your just general terrain considerations. Again, where you operate is where you operate and where you should be most familiar, but you need to think about it. If you find yourself part of any sort of local mobilized rescue or search and rescue type teams, you're part of a, a FEMA DMAT, which is a medical assistance team or something along those lines, or a search and rescue team that may operate across state lines and things, know what operating environments are within your normal response area. Or if you're part of something else like Team Rubicon and you're going from your home station where you live in Montana and you're going to assist like earthquake in Haiti, you might want to do a little research on Haiti and what the environment is like out there. What is the weather? What are the days, highs and lows? Is this going to be a jungleish thing? Are you going to be in an urban city? Know where you're going to be at so that you can start planning appropriately, especially as a medical provider, knowing what you need to think about. So if I normally operate here in the Mid-Atlantic and I'm asked to go support somebody out on the West Coast in the mountains, I need to buff back up on my more high altitude, legit high altitude illnesses and some of the other environmental things that are going to go on out there so that I'm much more familiar with it when I go there. Same thing, right? Any other major terrain considerations that you can think of, Mike? No, I, given my experience, the Mid-Atlantic is some of the crummiest environment to work in. Uh, it's probably seconded only by jungles, but I haven't spent a whole lot of time in jungles. I have, and I would agree that the Mid-Atlantic region is very challenging. We do have good terrain. We have good solid microterrain, which gets into another discussion of land navigation and the ability to read a map and navigate. Yeah. The East Coast is very difficult. Like going out West, when you have yeah, you definitely have bigger mountains and actual big terrain, but it's really easy to navigate in because everything's big. You can see it on a map, whereas you might have two or three ridgelines on a map out in the mid-Atlantic region, and it's represented by just a tiny squiggle bump right. that you don't really fully appreciate until you've been in it for a while and you'd learn to understand what those little squiggles mean. And they, That's a ridge, and you're used to seeing a big ridge on a map, and you're like, what? Man, yeah. I shouldn't have hit this already, and you did. You so. did. Yep. That's a pretty good summary. Again, we don't have all of the expertise to talk about the skill set required in each environment, but I can speak to the mountains. And the minute you get off trail or off of a off of a gravel road in the mountains, especially in the Mid Atlantic, you're, I mean, you're hoofing it. 
right? You're carrying all your things and, and you got to carry the person. It's not so as much in the jungle, oh, excuse me, in the desert, the jungle. The jungle is largely the same, depending on how thick the jungle age. The desert, beaches, it's typically not too uncommon to be able to get a boat relatively close to somebody in a beached environment or even in a swampy environment, right? You can typically make your way to a place if you have the local expertise to understand the waterways and the, and the, the pathways inside of a swampy area. But mountains, jungle, a lot of times it's just a matter of, guess what, we're carrying and we're carrying for a while. So yeah. being accustomed to the equipment, having been trained with the equipment, understanding your limitations, depending on how far you have to go, it can be a lot of work, especially, especially in, in my experience in the Mid-Atlantic over the gravel. It's not the trail that'll kill you. It's all the rocks in the middle of the trail that'll get in the way, right? Yeah. Wheeling a Stokes isn't that hard. Wheeling a Stokes over three foot rocks. by three foot rocks True embedded rock. in the trail constantly yeah. is, is uh, it's a challenge from time to time. Yep. All right. So that takes us into our, our next section, operational capabilities in your area. So again, this is going to vary depending on where you operate and where you function. If you're new to an area or you've been invited out, like you're serving on a special detail with the National Park Service and you're going from your home park on the East Coast out to the West Coast or vice versa, you need to look at the uh, operational capabilities in your area. So, and we're going to talk pretty much mid-Atlantic region for Mike and I right now with this, just because we are, this is the one we are most intimately familiar with. I'm pretty familiar with some of the stuff going out West into Colorado and the Sierra, but this is really going to focus on our region just because it's what we know. And, and again, it really covers the basis of a lot of different areas. So the big one, do you have wilderness trained EMS teams or personnel available? And for the most part, the answer to that is going to be no. No. As we've talked in a couple other episodes, for the most part, the best you're going to hope for are hopefully some wilderness first responder trained personnel, maybe an EMT who's been to a wilderness first aid or wilderness first responder course, who is more familiar with conducting EMS or medical services in the wilderness and austere environment. So a lot of times, yeah, it's Mike and I have been engaged with a, a couple other folks who are really getting into this this realm and we're trying to help make wilderness EMS a bigger thing, get more yeah. awareness to it, understand that it is it is a true subspecialty for EMS. And what we know is there's not a lot of people who truly practice wilderness EMS. And we're talking wilderness EMS, and we've talked about that before. We're not going to rehash that one. The next one is, what are the available search and rescue or mountain rescue teams? So if you need specialized responses, does the area you're working in, do you have local search and rescue assets? What are their capabilities? What are they trained to do? What are they not able to do? So I know for Mike and I in this area, if you need technical rescue, like if you actually need vertical rope work done, it's Call really me. not going to come from the this. local search and rescue teams. Right. Because most of them in this area, just because the preponderance of our training doesn't require it, are they able to do some steep earth limited rope work? Yes. Are they going to be trusted to do haul a basket and a provider up a vertical face? Yeah. For the most part, no. So what are they capable of? Do they have trained medical providers? Are, are they all wilderness first aiders, wilderness first responders? Or do they just require you to have a Red Cross first aid card and a CPR card? Um, so you, no, I will you, tell you, a lot of mountain rescue teams, even like PMR, some of the more prestigious mountain rescue mm -hmm. teams, they specialize in location and extrication of people. They are not necessarily specialists in advanced life support care. Correct. Or may they have medical direction to do advanced life support care. This this varies a lot, region by region, team by team. Oh, very much. But 
you know, if you are going to an area or you're beginning to investigate this, you really have to look into what's available. I've met a lot of people over the years working in both SAR teams and an EMS field where people come in thinking it is one thing and then they discover three, four, five years into it that it's really not what they expected because they came in with a preconceived notion that it was like mm-hmm. cool guy hanging from a rope doing rescue stuff. And it turns out it's actually a lot of walking around an uncut trail in the mid-Atlantic in the middle of the summer looking for clues. That's um, exactly so, it. So, you know, there are a lot of mountain rescue teams out there that are very good at mountain rescue, very good at location, locating and tracking and, and specialties related to that. But medicine is not their jam. And there's actually, yep. in my opinion, a large opportunity for specialty medicine teams to facilitate the extrication of folks once they're located. That, that is just not a thing that really exists in depth in most of the country. There's, there's pockets, there's places. But in general, it's, it's mostly locate and extricate. It's not provide life-saving care. That's exactly it. So this is in combination with those two, like the local SAR mountain rescue teams, which are often one and the same, depending on where you're at. It's just how they might label themselves. If you go out to Europe, they're generally not referred to as search and rescue teams. They're all essentially known as a mountain rescue team, but they're all providing essentially the same service. Now, I will admit it in Europe, a lot of them are much more technically rescue proficient just because of their environment. But again, a lot of those don't have specialist medical personnel with them, only if they have like Mike or I, like a paramedic or a doctors on their teams who are allowed, man, here's the big one, allowed to practice medicine with those teams. Yep. So Mike and I, even as paramedics licensed and certified where we are, we can't practice as paramedics with any of the, I don't think anybody right now, the local search and rescue teams in this region, because none of them hold an EMS license and have medical oversight to allow us to practice as paramedics. Right. The highest level you could basically practice that is that of a wellness first responder, which is why most of those personnel stay at that level. And this is, again, like Mike mentioned, this is an area where you might find folks like myself or Mike, one or two guys being attached to a local search and rescue or mountain rescue team to come in and provide some of that advanced wilderness or austere medical care. And again, that very much goes back to the whole licensing and supervision and such. But that's, yep. that's where you might see it. You're not going to find whole teams full of wilderness medicine professionals. It's just, there's a couple that are out there, but it's very, very few and far between, uh, which kind of leads into the next piece, the volunteer versus professional. So nothing against the volunteer teams. Most search and rescue teams in the United States are all volunteer, the vast majority. Those that are not are usually part of a sheriff's department or similar function under law enforcement. And I don't, I can't think of any search and rescue teams in the United States that are standing search and rescue teams only. They are all other providers or specialists of one flavor or another who come together to perform the search and rescue functions. I don't think we have any... The, the National Park Service has a couple like YOSAR, right? That's a secondary duty and that's both volunteer and career, right? Yeah, same, but that's what I'm saying is it's a secondary duty for both sides. You're a volunteer who serves with YOSAR or you're a park ranger who is volunteer and are assigned to the YOSAR team but you don't just hang out in the Yosar headquarters waiting for a SAR to come out. It's one of those, the mission comes out and then the Yosar team assembles and goes to execute. And then once the mission is over, everybody goes back to their day jobs. So the volunteer versus professional, really there is not much of a difference. Almost every one of the volunteer search and rescue or mount rescue teams, especially in the United States, hold themselves to certain standards for their own training and certification levels on par with their professional counterparts. So that's usually it shouldn't be an issue for you. Just it just kind of helps to understand who you're dealing with. Are you dealing with sheriff's deputies who this is this might be a tertiary or even farther down the list duty for them as a search and rescue person? 
Or are you dealing with somebody who's, they're a volunteer and this is what they do besides their day job is they do volunteer search and rescue and they're actually very proficient and knowledgeable in the area. So it all depends what you get. So it helps to just understand that. And tied into all the above, how long will it take them to respond? So this isn't a dial 911 and inside of eight minutes, you're going to have an ambulance at your front door. The dispatch system for various search and rescue, mountain rescue teams varies, but the reality is it can take several hours to mobilize even an initial first response of, we'll say, six providers or six searchers or team members to get to wherever we're going to call the base of operations and begin search operations or begin the SAR process of doing the rescue, not necessarily the search, but the actual rescue part to start getting a basket moving down trail to provide rescue for somebody who's injured and needs evacuation. So this is a very time-intensive process as well, the total time to respond. Like for the primary park Mike and I work out of, if we did, if it was a major SAR and we needed manpower that was beyond what could be rallied up from the on-hand folks and you had to call for outside resources, it will be hours. It will be at least two hours because that's really what most people have to drive just to get to where we're at, just to park at the park and stage. And then another couple hours on trail. And that's assuming they got the call right away. So we're already looking at four hours. And the reality is it's going to be closer to six, eight, 10 hours plus. So if this is a time critical thing, it's not. This is where you as an osteo provider get to work your magic because you're going to be with your patient for that extended period of time. Right. And that's, I mean, that's one of the key things that differentiates what we consider wilderness EMS from street EMS. Part of the waiting could be waiting for resources to get you and your patient and their situation handled because your resources are limited. It's quite common for that to happen. All right. So again, access to the patient. We've kind of talked about this a little bit as we went through each of the major environments, but roads, trails, do they exist? Do they get you close to where you need to be? And then you can get off a truck and then proceed on foot. Those are the best, right? Everybody wants those. Actually, everybody wants the one where we can drive up and take five steps off the trail and go, ha ha, I'm here. Wilderness EMS, but I drove up in a Suburban. Yeah. Generally not the case. There's only... Really, there's only a couple of trails that Mike and I work that happens on and nobody, okay, I won't say nobody, very few people ever get hurt on the road. There's one particular area where if we go that route and we get to park up at the end of a fire road and it cuts down significantly on the amount of walking you have to do, which cuts down on the time. But roads are, are the desire, they're what everybody wants, but it's one of those things that makes the austere medicine piece austere, right? They're just not everywhere they need to be. Same thing with trails. Working in the backcountry areas, most people, generally speaking, aside from those who truly go off-grid, backcountry, backpacking, are along some sort of hiking trail, biking trail, etc. Now, assuming they know which trail they're on makes it easier, but you still have to walk it. You still have to carry them out along that trail. And not every trail will allow for a wheeled stokes. Not every trail will allow for a UTV. So it might be true manpower movement. And then, of course, the all-dreaded, no kidding, cross-country, through-the-woods movement. And again, this goes back to, can you use your map and compass? I know I got to this trail intersection and I have to go to here because maybe they were backcountry camping and they are well off the beaten path at this point, but they're violently ill. They were injured. Bear attack. Who knows, right? And your ability to do actual cross-country movement becomes very important. And this is one of those places where the environment is absolutely going to get its say. Is this going to be extremely difficult? Is this going to be some tight thick, dense woods like Mike and I encounter quite often? Or is this, are you out there on the West Coast where, yeah, what we consider thick woods in Colorado is not the same as out here on the East Coast, not by <laughs> a long shot, right? Yeah. 
if you can be out there in the mountains and you can see the horizon, you're not in dense woods. Like, yeah. Uh, I had a good friend of mine who's from Montana, and that's one of the things he hated about being out here on the East Coast, and he couldn't wait to get back to Montana. I mean, there's a reason they call it big sky country. So yep. He hated not being able to see the horizon. So your cross-country movement could be just horrendous. And it could be because of the, the density of the foliage and the undergrowth, like in a jungle-type place. Maybe there's not a lot of up and down elevation gain or loss that you have to navigate. You might be walking relatively flat, but you simply cannot walk a straight line more than three feet. Yeah, you're bushwhacking the entire time, right? Yeah, and it gets very tedious, especially when you get to a point where you're trying to carry a Stokes or or something else. So cross-country movement gets to be a challenge. And of course, lastly, the weather. Again, we talked about that. Weather is not the only piece of the environment you need to consider, but it is the most obvious, and it can have a huge impact on you. But the weather is literally that. It's just the weather. Is it going to be sunny? Is it going to be rainy, cold, hot, somewhere in between, windy, cloud cover? A lot of those things are going to give you a clue if you're thinking you might want to try and do a helicopter operation. Some of those things might be saying, no, it could be beautifully sunny, clear skies. But if the winds are blowing through at 50 miles an hour, you're not going to hoist and you're probably not going to get that guy to want to land in a lot of mountainous environments. Just because if he doesn't have the space to fight with the wind, it's nothing he wants to do with it. And I'm referred to he as the pilot. As the pilot. Yep. Or a she. We have plenty of female pilots around here too, right? Yep. So just do your weather, right? Before you head out on your mission, know what your weather's supposed to be. Now, Mike and I were at a training course and the weather called for clear skies, zero precipitation. <laughs> and there we were at 2 a.m. getting drenched and then hailed on. So is the weather forecast always 100%? Certainly not. But at Thank least you, North Carolina. You're the yeah. best. <laughs> it was a great time. It was a great course. It was a good yep. capstone to the course. I, yeah. mean, I mean, I honestly kind of asked for a better end of the program but, but anyway. it was cold and it was wet and i didn't like it yeah yeah my baby sack became a, a water balloon it was a good learning opportunity though like you and i were probably yeah. some of the best prepared people for that oh, we were the most prepared people just yeah. because it's not something people deal with yeah. you always have to account for the weather yeah uh, in the middle of the summer when i'm sweating my my you know what's off in the middle of august heat in virginia i take a jacket with me you know why oh, yeah. because and when the sun goes down and the wind starts whipping it turns out you can get chilly in the middle of August sitting on a rock outcropping <laughs> waiting for a helicopter. It just, it happens. It, it's a yes, thing. Yes, it does. Right? Yeah, it does. Especially if, yeah, you've got a little altitude going. Yeah. Right? You're wet. Yeah. So do understand your weather. Know what your weather's like. Understand the averages. If you're tra- and again, if you're traveling to some other location that you're not used to, get on the internets, look at Professor Google or whoever you choose to use and do some research. Know what you're getting yourselves into so you know what gear to bring. And if you're not sure, bring it all. Mm-hmm. Right, like Mike said, my Arcteryx jacket, my you know my little insulated puffy guy is lives in my pack year round. It just doesn't come out anymore. I used to take it out, but then the point was, why bother? Because you never know. We'll say tied in with that, and you've heard me preach this on previous episodes. The ground is always cold. August, Mid Atlantic, ninety five degrees out with eighty five percent plus humidity. The ground is, the cold. Ground is cold. Insulate your patient. Yep. Never ever just lay your patient on the ground and assume they're fine because it's hot as hell and you sweated your... Well, you can assume they're fine, but they're going to be hypothermic eventually, or they're going to be hypothermic eventually, right? Give yeah. it time. It's going to happen. So just be aware of that. The ground is always cold. And tied in with that, there's no such thing as warm mountain water. Of course, there are some exceptions. Yes, there are hot springs out there. I've been to some. They're awesome. But for the most part, there's no such thing as warm mountain water. Where Mike and I operate, there's a lot of small to mid-sized streams that flow. And even in the summer months, when you consider that water 
and I'm using air quotes, warm, that water mm -hmm. is not warm. And if you've got a patient who's been immersed in it. Tepid. Yeah, I'll use the worm. It's not freezing anymore. Right. You got to get your patients out of that. You got to get them. If they're, because we have a lot of people that slip and fall trying to get into this place because it's beautiful. It's beautiful water. There's rocks out there. They want to go the era of social media, get their Instas and their tweeters and whatever their Facebook statuses are. Post to their MySpace page. Yeah, Mike's laughing. He knows I, I'm the I, tech guy. I'm laughing. But yes, <laughs> I mean, it will always be, if they're wet, they're cold. If they're on the ground, yeah. they're cold. I don't care what time of the year it is. I would almost, I'm going to say this as a somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it's almost more important to get them off the cold ground than it is to get them covered. You need to mm -hmm. do both. But yeah, I take, I, I, I'm always concerned about people laying on the ground or having been on the ground for a while. Even simple things like a broken ankle, right? Where they've been sitting oh, for a while on a rock in the shade because it's a mid-Atlantic, so everything's got tree cover somewhere. They're getting cold. They're getting cold in the middle of August. Like, we have to yeah. manage that problem. No, yeah, Mike and I have come up on we can't even count dozens of patients who, you know, relatively minor orthopedic injuries that are shivering by the time we get to them. And yeah, it's, it's the summer months and they shouldn't be shivering, but it's because, you know, they're wearing short shorts, yoga pants, tank tops, mm -hmm. whatever. And that's it. And they didn't bring, like we do, a jacket, a wind layer or a sweatshirt or something else to put on them. And now they're no longer moving and generating body heat. Yep. Add that to even minor traumatic injuries like a broken ankle, your patients start to have issues or can have issues or it makes those issues worse so yeah you gotta the environment the weather you gotta take into account both of those and their impacts on your patient before and after their injury so you gotta think about that if they've been hiking long and it's august and they've had one 16 ounce bottle of dasani that day that's not enough right and so when you get to them yep. it's like oh yeah i've had a bottle what kind of a bottle and if you don't show me a two liter nalgene well then super you you obviously haven't drank enough so you might need fluids. And again, we've talked about that before, but so you got to think about that. And then the environment after, are they been sitting out? Are they shivering when you get to them? All right. So do they need passive or active rewarming? Can you just throw a space blanket around them and that's going to be sufficient? Or do you need to actually get somebody in there and say, give your friend a hug, help them warm back up. Okay. And I guess that's really about it. So we don't cross into too many more topics or go back over ground we've already covered in previous episodes. Yeah. We're not on episode 800 yet. Like we, we're still meandering and figuring this thing out. Yeah, but we're awesome and you guys we're, love us yeah right? we're please, amazing yeah please love us please send us emails so, and tell us you love us so wrapping it up right know your environment plan for it if you don't know where you're going do your research don't forget to plan for your patients always plan for your patients if you didn't go out with stuff to keep your patient warm or help cool them etc then you as an ems provider you're wrong right that's your job you need to know what you need to know for your patients and be prepared for it and as Anybody who does wilderness EMS, whether it's volunteer search and rescue teams, NPS rangers, state park rangers, whatever it might be, the visitors that we encounter and the patients we find, they probably don't have what they should have. And it's kind of up to you to help augment some of that and get them squared away so that they can endure the rest of the rescue efforts that you have planned. Yep. So just all this leads back into a lot more planning a lot more knowledge that you have to pack into your brain and be familiar with and be able to do research on. And that's pretty much it for this one. What else you got for us, Mike? That's about it, man. I think it, it didn't occur to me when we start recording this episode, but it occurred to me after that the environment is really the thing that makes wilderness EMS wilderness EMS. Oh, absolutely. It's the entire determining factor. 
take away everything we've said before about access to tools and carrying it on your back and all that good stuff. At the end of the day, if the environment's nice out and they're not that far away, you can carry your tools on your back and go do work and extricate them and it's fine. But it's when it's when the weather gets bad or when the environment isn't permissive to doing things easily. That's when Wilderness EMS really becomes its own mainstay and it becomes a different problem space. I have a part of my my due for my agency that that is part of the Appalachian Trail. And well, most of our due covers the Appalachian Trail. But just the fact that <laughs> a twisted ankle on the Appalachian Trail is just much harder to solve. And then when you add in the fact that it that weather can be a component or the environment is just simply hard, it makes this work very, very different. So yeah, that's it's very much like we talked about in, I think it was our last episode when we talked about just that first simple case study, simple dislocated knee, which is really in the grand scheme of things and wilderness stuff, a benign injury, right? The dislocation was reduced, the kneecap was in place, but it was a early spring. The weather wasn't really a factor other than the patient was getting cold because they'd been sitting there so long, not making body heat anymore. And it was not as warm as it was in the summer. And it still took four plus hours to do the full rescue with that patient. And that yep. was for a simple injury. And where you didn't have to worry about airway or any cardiac complications or right. bleeding, severe bleeding, et cetera. And so, yes, that environment, the, the weather, the terrain, the ability to get people to and from, it, it all combines. And that's what makes Austerable Medicine unique and the challenge to it. And I think that's really what Mike and I find most enjoyable about this is yep. there the urban side of EMS and riding the ambulance, there's a lot of times as a paramedic where I find some patients that are like, holy crap, that was pretty crazy. It's one of those, some of those calls where I sit back and go, eh, I felt like a paramedic today because I actually had to think and, and do work and not just eh, the bleeding thing. Let's stop that. Right. Or I had to actually look at, look at an ECG and say, wow, okay, this is good. Your heart rate's still too low. Let's fix this. Right. What drugs do I want to use? Do I want to do push dose presser? Do I want to do a full atropine ACLS kind of thing? Do I need to pace you? Sometimes you got to think about those things. And then when you take that same patient and you put them 5, 10, 15 miles deep into an environment that doesn't lend itself to an ambulance or a clinical setting like that, knowing that you have to operate out of a backpack with the knowledge that's in your head and a very limited supply of equipment and medications, Yep, that's, that's the challenge. And that's what makes austere when wilderness EMS, well, I'll say fun and challenging. Yeah, I love the challenge. Because I'm old, I don't like the hiking anymore, but I like being in the environment and doing the work. Yeah, I'm with you. You are old, that's for sure. Well, with that, I think we've about covered it. As always, if you have any comments or there's anything you want to hear us talk about, hit us up at the show at emsonthemountain.com. Hit us up on social media, the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Gitters. Gitters, I guess the new one. It's the new Twitters. I don't know. I don't keep up with this stuff, but, but that's what the kids tell me. <laughs> um, we're happy to talk about anything you guys want to engage on. We also have uh, uh, the EMS Lifestyle is coming online on a platform called Locals.com. That's where we're going to do most of our interacting with the community. So hit us up. We'd love to hear what you think. Sean, anything else? I think that's it. So once again, folks, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMS OTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode. 
Thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.